Turn with me to Romans chapter number 3. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. The main point of Romans 1, 2, and 3. I've said this more than once. You guys probably already know what I'm going to say. The main point of Romans 1, 2, and 3 is, is Paul is proving that everybody has the same problem. The universal problem of man is that everybody is a sinner. Romans 1. Paul says, I've come to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's only the gospel that's going to save people, both the Jews and the Gentiles. Chapter 1, he gives this long list of all the common sins of the pagan, heathen, Gentile nations. He says, the the Gentiles are bad. Chapter 2, he turns his guns on the Jews and says, the Jews are just as bad. The Jews are just as bad. And at the end of chapter 2, he kind of blows everybody's mind by saying to the Jewish people, your physical circumcision doesn't cut any dice with God. It takes a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. So it's something that they cannot do to themselves. That's what he says in chapter 2. Now, when you get to chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, you have this, this question comes up. Paul's answering a series of questions here. Now, these might be the very same questions that Paul asked himself when he was thinking about becoming a Christian, when he's mulling these things over. Now, I want you to remember something, friends, is that when you, when you come to Christ, there is a, there's, it's, not with, it's not without thinking, right? You have to go through some, some thinking. Uh, Peter Masters, in his book, uh, Physicians of Souls, he describes the new birth as more than a process, but it's a process of, of understanding. Because a person hears the gospel, The Holy Spirit begins to work inside of their their hearts and minds, and the Holy Spirit causes them to understand some things, to think through some situations. Sometimes it it takes the thinking of, you know, you have to think about, am I really that bad? Am I really that bad? And you think about it, do I really need this? Is Jesus really the Son of God? And your, your mind goes through different stages of thinking, stages of development, you could say, as you're thinking your way to the cross thinking your way to salvation. It's not an emotional decision. It's something that's in the mind. It's a conviction that takes place, and it takes time. That's why you can give the gospel to somebody. That's why people who come to church, you know, they may come to church for years before they become Christians because they're, they're, working, they're working through these things. Now, I'll say it like this. In Romans, not Romans 3, but John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be what? You must be born again. And then, and, and he used this analogy of being born again of a new birth. Nicodemus says, how can a guy go back into his mother's womb a second time when he's grown? Jesus said, well, it's not that kind of birth. It's a spiritual birth. But if you follow that analogy of birth, conception begins, life begins at conception, right? Life begins at conception. But the, when does the little baby become self-aware? Now, I myself was born, believe it or not. And I don't know when I became self-aware. I've had five children. Or Valerie's had five children. (laughs) And I don't know when those kids become self-aware. I've watched them kind of go through little voyages of self-discovery where they discover their toes. They they, they know their fingers right away because their fingers always go where? Always go in their mouth, right? Remember the little onesies with the little gloves on them so they can't scratch their skin? And then I'm thinking about all the baby memories now. That little Johnson Johnson baby magic lotion you rub on them. 
and the babies smell so good, and, you know, just, just the, all the little cool things about babies, those little hands when they touch your face and pull your glasses off, <laughs> stick their finger up your nose. <laughs> and I, I, we've, we've had these babies, you know, and you, and you watch them go through kind of where they discover their toes, and they, all they're always grabbing their feet. And then one day, you'll be holding your little kid, and all of a sudden, they see the hand, and they're fixated by it. And you see them looking at it, and you wonder, what are they thinking? What's going through their mind? We don't know when they become self-aware, but eventually, they do become self-aware. And they know who they are, and what they are, and what they're supposed to do. And I think the new birth works the same way. People are born again by the Spirit of God. And then they have to go through this, this, uh, this voyage of understanding that I'm a sinner, I mean, that I deserve to be a sinner, not that I deserve to be a sinner, I'm a sinner, I deserve condemnation, and then I need a Savior, Jesus. There's all, all these, this, the way you're thinking through it. And then you put your faith in Jesus and then you learn to rest and trust in Him. This is, this, is a, this, is, this is how people go. They go through a process, a trajectory of understanding, cognitive realizations, you might say. And so when you read Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, these might be the things that Paul wrestled with as he's becoming a Christian. Because he's arguing with people. He's, he's arguing, he's thinking ahead. He's, he's made a statement in verses 28 and 29. Let's read that. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. Circumcision And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Now, this is the shocking statement where Paul says, this is what really matters. He's saying this to Jewish people, and this probably shocks them because circumcision has mattered to them a lot. It's very important. Remember, the Lord told Abraham, he said, if you don't circumcise your son, then that kid is cut off from the covenant. He's outside of the family. Outside of the kingdom, you might say. So after Paul makes this surprising statement, there's an objection in verse number 1 of chapter 3. After being told that being a Jew doesn't seem to matter, the question is, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? The question is, if, it, if, it doesn't, if circumcision doesn't matter, if being a Jew doesn't matter, then why has it ever mattered? If it used to be important... Why isn't it still important? And why doesn't it matter now? What advantage then is there? Why did God ever have his own particular redeemed, chosen people? Why did he bother with that? What's the point? What's the point? What advantage then is there in being a Jew? What's the benefit then, Paul? Why has God wasted his time with all these Jews down through the centuries? Why? What's the advantage? Well, Paul answers the question. And what does he say? Much in every way. Much in every way. Now, believe it or not, Paul has already said that there is value in circumcision in chapter 2. Sometimes we miss it. Listen to chapter 2, verse number 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you've become as though you have not been circumcised. So Paul says there is value in this circumcision. But only if that circumcision is married to obedience. Obedience. And this is where the Jews fail. They were circumcised but disobedient. So what's the advantage? Now notice what Paul says. Much in every way, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words 
of God. This is their big advantage. The authorized version says chiefly. They've been trusted with the oracles of God. NIV says they've been entrusted with the very words of God. First of all, Paul says the greatest benefit that the Jews have, it's interesting the benefit that he mentions. He doesn't say it was the presence of God in the midst of them. He doesn't say it was the the sacrificial system. He doesn't say it was the the written codes. He says they had the words of God. God gave them his words. God chose the Jewish people. He made them a people. He redeemed those people. Listen, my friends, don't forget, of all the peoples of the world, of all the peoples of the world, of all the families of the world, God came to one man, Abraham, and said, you're my guy. And from you, I'm going to make a great nation. And Abraham had two sons. He had more sons than it, actually, but he had two first, his two first sons. God said, one of those sons is the promise, is the chosen son, that was Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons. And God said, I'm choosing Jacob. And then from Jacob's family comes the nation of Israel. God chose these people and said, To you, I'm going to reveal myself in a way that I have not revealed myself to others. The Jewish people. And then you go through Abraham's life. And then Joseph, if you're reading the book of Genesis right now, you know Joseph has just brought Jacob, his father, into Egypt. And then you're going to have the Exodus story. And then in Exodus, God redeems Israel. He redeems them in a special way. He, give me, he sends Moses to deliver them. And then he sends the, tw- the, not the 12 plagues. How many plagues were there? <laughs> the 10 plagues. Sends the 10 plagues upon Egypt. And then there's that last plague is the Passover. And God says the, death, the messenger of death is going to pass over the people. And, every, and all the firstborn are going to be killed except for those who are under the blood. And if you read that passage, Exodus 12, you'll see that the the way of escape, the way of escape was not made known to the Egyptians. It was only made known to God's people, the chosen people, the Jews. And he he redeemed them. But they still don't have the, the, the words yet. God takes them from there through the Red Sea, through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And there God gives them the the words, the words. And all down through the Jewish history, you see them having the words of God and keeping the words of God. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah and see the the prophecy of Isaiah, where he he heard words from God and wrote them down. God is giving his words, giving his revelation to his people down through the centuries. And then once the Jews received his words, they kept a hold of those words. They were entrusted with the watch care over those words. God caused the Jewish people to value his words in a way that was, made them better than everybody else's words. There's a lady in our church in Oklahoma. Her name was uh, Glenda, Glenda Landry. And her husband was in Korea. And they were married. Uh, they were married right after he came back from Korea. But, you know, if any of you guys have family who've been, who, were in, who were in the Korean conflict, you know that a lot of the soldiers' records were burned up in a big fire in St. Louis, Missouri, where they had all the, the records for that. And so if, you're, if your father or uncle or anybody was in Korea, their records are, are, are uh, the official records are gone because there was a big fire in St. Louis. And uh, so when, when Gerald, uh, he was in the 82nd Airborne, when he tried to apply for his B- VA benefits... Uh, when, he, when he was old and he had some health problems, he, uh, 
They said, we don't have any record that you were actually in Korea. We have your DD-214, but we don't have the evidence that you actually were in Korea. Because being a combat veteran entitled him to different, to different benefits. Well, there's only one, way to, only one way to prove he was actually in Korea. You know what it was? The letters he wrote to his girlfriend in the United States. Glinda. The love letters he wrote. Roses are red, violets are blue, but there's nobody, Glinda, as sweet as you. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know? These, these love letters you send back. Now, she, you know what she did with those love letters? She saved them all. She saved them all. Now, guess how many of her letters he kept? <laughs> it was war. He couldn't keep up with stuff, you know? <laughs> but that's how they proved that he was in Korea was through the, through the letters she, she had received. She saved them. They were, they were cared for by her because they came to her from her beloved, from her Gerald. They were valuable to her. And God caused the Jewish people to value his words in a way unlike other people. If you read uh, 2 Kings chapter 22, you read about Josiah who became a king as if, when he was eight years old. But when he, after in his 16th year of his reign, he decides he wants to turn Israel back to the true and living God. They go to, the, to, to David's temple and they begin working through the temple trying to remodel it. And while they're remodeling it, guess what they find stored in that temple? They find the words of God. And they read the words, and it strikes them to the heart, and the whole nation goes through revival, turning back to the Lord. God caused the Jewish people to value his words. They were entrusted with the words of God. In fact, my friends, your your Old Testament that you have, no matter what translation you have, your Old Testament was carefully preserved and copied and cared for by Jewish scribes down through the centuries, watching over and protecting God's word. Paul says the greatest advantage of the Jewish people was they were given the words of God. They were given God's word. They were entrusted with God's. That's their first advantage, Paul says. Well, then he continues the argument. More questions. All right, we've got the words. But what if some did not have faith? Would their lack of faithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Okay, so they got the words. Does that mean the words are true? And they they had the words, but they didn't obey the words. And because they didn't obey the words, does that mean the words are valueless? What if the school up here on the hill, what if they decide to stop teaching mathematics and English? How many would be happy about that? As a kid, I would have said amen to both of them. The only R I liked in school was recess. (laughs) What if they stop teaching mathematics up there? Or what if they start teaching a kind of math that's skewed? What if they decide to start teaching that 2 plus 2 is 5? 2 plus 2 is 5. And every teacher they get comes in and says, Yeah, 2 plus 2 is 5. 2 plus 2 is 5. 2 plus 2 is 5. Does that make 2 plus 2, 5? No, it doesn't. What if the Jews did not obey the law of God? Does that make the law invalid? Does it nullify them? Paul says it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't invalidate it. You can have the truth in your hands, but whether or not you obey the truth doesn't, doesn't affect the truth. It doesn't change the truth. It's true no matter what you say. This is Paul's argument. 
They had the words of God. If they were so important to them, if they were so special, why didn't they obey them? Does their lack of faith in those words, does it nullify God's faithfulness? Does their inability to keep the law, does it say something about God? No, not at all, he says. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Well, what does this mean? What it means is that the law of God revealed what is righteous, revealed the truth, and it revealed that Israel was unrighteous. And they're always trying to justify themselves before God, trying to justify their sinfulness. This quotation here in verse, whatever this is, verse 4, is a quotation from David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, where David says, I have sinned before you and you only. David, David is brought to understand his own sinfulness. You see, the law of God was shown to be true because God said, this is the way to go, and they did not go that way. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? The law of God showed that God was true and that man was corrupt. They couldn't measure up to the standard of God's law. But if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say then? If the law of God reveals our unrighteousness, if it shows us our error... And if our unrighteousness validates God's word more perfectly, is God unjust in bringing his wrath on us? You have a parenthetical statement here. I'm using a human argument. Does everybody's Bible have the parentheses there? I'm using a human argument. Probably most people do. Paul says, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? How could God judge the world? Someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Now what you get into here is is if the law of God, if man's unrighteousness validates God's law, the human argument is, then how come I can't just keep on sinning and make God more glorious? Because this is what men do. This is what people do. When I say men, I mean men in the... humanity we always want to justify our sins we always want a reason to justify our sins this is one of the things I was struck with when I started listening to my friend Don Fortner uh, in in New New Covenant Theology was this is is something that goes through your mind I hesitate to say this I guess I'm not going to say it Come back next week. <laughs> Men always want to figure out a way to just to keep on sinning. I'm looking for an excuse. Looking for an excuse to keep on sinning. And this is one of, the, one of the things people don't like about eternal security sometimes. Like you Baptist, you think you can, you know, trust Jesus as your Savior, then live like hell the rest of your life and still go to heaven. Well, that, on one hand, that's true. <laughs> All your righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. You don't get into heaven because you're being real good. But another thing is also true is if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, you don't want to sin all the time. 
Well, is that really true, though? How many of you are saved? Say amen. How many of you want to sin sometimes? Say amen. Not quite as boisterous. <laughs> but we all, are, we, all, we all have these sinful desires that are in us. But when you sin as a Christian, how do you feel about it later? Oh, you feel like a rotten dog, don't you? You feel like a rascal. You're, you're convicted by it. Because you know you've done something you shouldn't do. Your conscience provokes you. What you see in this section is Paul is these is man's natural argument is if I can keep on sinning and make God more glorious, I want to keep on sinning. Man always wants to keep on sinning. And then Paul in verse number eight. Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported, as some say, I'm sorry, why not say as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do good the evil may result. The condemnation is deserved. And this, is, this was a, a slur the Jews used against Christians because they were, they were antinomian. They were without law. Christians were saying, we are not saved by keeping the law. Jews were saying, yes, you are. But you're not. So this is a slander. Christians are always slandered by their opponents. So this, this is, Paul has worked through these questions. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why, did, why, why can't we, if, 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 it, if being a Jew doesn't matter now, why has it mattered in the past? Paul says, first of all, because the Jews received the, word of, the words of God. The Jews received the words of God. Verse 9. So what's the conclusion? What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. The we here is Jews. What shall we conclude? Are we Jews any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, now notice the word here, alike are under sin. This is, this is what Paul is driving home. The universal problem of man. Everybody is a sinner. As it is written. And then he quotes here. This is, a, this is kind of a, a, a compilation of different quotes from the Psalms. Different passages in the Psalms. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. No one who seeks God by nature. By nature. Remember the first principles of Genesis. Adam and Eve sin against God. And what do they do when God comes to the garden? They hide from God. And God has to call out to them. He seeks for them. This is why, this is why people, you know, you, if you're like, in just kind of practical, a practical way this works is when people get off into sin in their life, they start doing things they shouldn't be doing, and, you know, one of the first things they stop doing is going to church. Because they don't want to be around the worship of God's people. They don't want to be around the Bible. They feel convicted by it. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. When you feel convicted for your sinfulness, that's good. That means God's your Father. (laughs) And He's working on you. Chastening you, loving you. The Bible says in Hebrews that the Lord receives every son. He scourges every son whom he receives. I read it in Proverbs this morning about the value of chastening your children. In Proverbs 13. No one seeks after God on their own. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace. They do not know. This is the life of the unbeliever, the life of the lost person. Their life culminates in producing ruin and misery mark their ways. No peace. No peace. Paul says here, this is what leaps out of their hearts. This is what man is by nature. This is the problem. This is the evidence of the universal problem. This is how man behaves. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 11, it says no one seeks God. In verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Man is not concerned about God at all. Unregenerate people, the unsaved people, do not care two hoots about what God says about anything. They don't care. And if you're here this morning and you don't care what God says about anything, that says something about your spiritual condition. It says something about, something about your spiritual condition. Now, sometimes what we do when we're in church, I've heard a lot of good sermons for other people, haven't you? <laughs> I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. Oh, they needed it. Well, if they're not here today and you're here, (laughs) then this sermon is for you. No fear of God before their eyes. And this this is the distinction between Christians and non-Christians. No fear of God before their eyes. What does it mean to have fear of God? The Greek word here is phobos, from which we get the word Phobia, phobia, fear. And it can mean mean abject fear. It can mean reverence. It, It can mean a lot of things. For the Christian, we fear God like a child fears their father, right? We have both love and fear of our father. Both love and fear. We love him. And we don't want to disappoint him. We kind of live in fear of, of, of him finding fault with us. There's a reverence here. The way of peace they have not known. They don't care about God. This is what leaps from the natural heart. Look at these words here. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice sea. It just leaps out of them. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They shed blood, miserable lives. People who are not Christians, people who are not born again, led by the Spirit of God, their lives have enhanced misery and ruin. Enhanced misery and ruin. They do, they do unspeakable things. Now Paul says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. This is what Paul says. The law of God holds everybody accountable. The law of God gets everybody. The law condemns everybody because everybody's measured by the same standard, by the same standard. I used to work at a a wood shop that made cabinet doors. And... um, and I ran, I ran this machine. It was called, it was a chop saw is what it was. And uh, every day I'd get this little sheet of paper and it told me 
how many, if I said rail and style, how many of you guys know what a rail and style is on a, on a door? Okay, so my job was to chop out the rails and styles for all these jobs. And so we had this big warehouse full of, uh, of boards ripped down to size. And uh, I had this little sheet of paper. And it told me, you know, how many cherry rails and styles, how many walnut rails and styles, hard walnut, soft walnut. We had cherry, I said cherry. We had mahogany. We had ash. Man, I love the smell of ash. You guys ever cut ash? Man, it just smells so good. Ash. We had uh, that wood that grows in the swamps in Louisiana. It's a, yeah, cypress. That's stinky wood. Whew. I like cutting that. We, I'd cut all these things out. And so I had this chop saw, and they would bring, I'd bring the wood over on a cart, and it would say, you know, cut, you know, 37, 13 and a quarter inches. 13... What did I say? 37, 13 and a quarter inches. Okay. Well, uh, and, that, and it had to be, so my 13 and a quarter inches had to be right. Because on the other side of the, the building was a guy who was making the panels for those cabinet doors, the raised panels, you know, the center part. And so he had a, those things were going to be cut to a certain length. And if my cuts were off, and his cuts were off, well, you're going to have a mess at the end. So we, every morning, the first thing we did, we had to calibrate all the stops on these saws. Now, the saw that I ran had a, had a thing called a tiger stop. It was a digital stop. And so I would just type in the number 13, 13 and a quarter. What's the decimal for 13 and a quarter? 13.25. And so I type in 13.25, hit go. This stop would go zoop, shoot out there to 13 and a quarter. I just slide that board through there. I'd smack that stop. When I smack that stop, I hit a pedal and boom! It'll cut that wood like that. And let me tell you, friends, it also cut off fingers. Very, I got my finger in a table saw when I worked there. Very, very nasty. Very dangerous. But we had to calibrate all those stops. All those stops. Every day, this guy would come around. He had a little, he had a little block of metal exactly five inches long. Exactly five inches long. It was metal. He went to everybody who had a stop on their cutter. He would come out there every day. He would type in five inches, run it out there. He cut it off, and he compared everything to that, to that little metal thing. Or he would come around with a, with a, a, not a what's the, what's the little, little a micrometer? Is that what it's called? The little thing that comes out like that? Caliper. Caliper. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Jim. <laughs> who said it, actually? Somebody said it. Bob, he was, Bob admits it, <laughs> it was me. Everybody, everybody had to be measured by the same standard. We all had to be at five inches. My five inches had to be the same guys, because there was two chop saws. My five inches and his five inches had to be the same. That way everybody came out to the same place. Well, God's word measures everybody by the same thing, his law. We're all measured by the same law. There's not a different law for Jews and a different law for Gentiles. There's not a different, different law for Americans and uh, Asians. It's all the same. And we're all measured by the same standard. We all come up short. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. This is the universal problem. Paul is belaboring this for almost three chapters. Three chapters. I've managed to spend maybe four or five sermons on it. And I could spend four or five more sermons on it. Because we all need to know something. We are unrighteous without God. (laughs) We're unrighteous without Christ. We have no righteousness of our own. 
And people still don't get it. Still don't get it. Verse 19. There is no one who will be declared righteous by observing the law. Nobody will be declared righteous by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You're not going to be You're not going to be righteous. You're not going to be declared righteous. You're not going to be saved by works. By works. Although that is counterintuitive to us, isn't it? It's counterintuitive to us. Because we're Americans, right? You're an American, say amen. All right, so I'm an American too. And in this great country, if if you want to have more stuff, better stuff, what's it take? Four-letter word, work. Work, 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 work. Work all you can. Work hard. Work. Work yourself up. And you can do it, can't you? In this great country, you, you, you can start out, you know, living in a cardboard box like Jim talked about the people in the Indians. You can start out in a cardboard box in this country, and you can work your way up into a trailer house. Amen? You can live there for a while and then work yourself into a, a different kind of house. <laughs> work hard enough, you might be able to buy a house on the water, amen? <laughs> you can start out driving a Ford and move to a Chevy anytime, amen? <laughs> you, can, you can work. There's lots of, we, and that's intuitive to us. When I was a little kid, my dad and my grandpa, you know, I say, boy, work, work, work. I say, what about school? They say, work. <laughs> work your way into it. It makes, sense, it makes sense to us. It makes sense to everybody in the world. Work. But you cannot work yourself into heaven. You cannot work yourself into heaven. It cannot be done. You can only get yourself into heaven by putting your faith in Jesus. It's exactly counterintuitive to us because instead of working, you have to stop. You cannot, go to, you cannot get into heaven trying to work yourself there and trusting in Jesus. It doesn't work that way. You're justified by faith in Jesus. Now look at Romans 5, listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified Through faith. It's through faith. And faith only. Through faith and through faith only. I will have warm fellowship with any Christian person, any Christian pastor who teaches justification by faith. Warm Christian fellowship if they believe that. But if they believe anything other than that, that's a different gospel. That's a different gospel. That's a Galatians 1 thing. Can I have any fellowship with that? That's the unfruitful works of darkness. A false gospel is a horrible thing. It's a horrible lie. Horrible error. Righteousness does not come by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law reminds us constantly we cannot live up to the standard. We cannot live up to the standard. Now, I plan to preach all the way through the end of the chapter this morning, but I'm going to stop right here. All in favor, say amen. (laughs) But I want to just end by reading the last 10 verses. I'm going to come back and preach it next Sunday, Lord willing. 
but we'll end by reading it, all right? But now a righteous man from God, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him, that's Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in, the, in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Excuse me. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law, the law of faith. If you're here today and in the midst of this sermon, you've realized that you are unrighteous, that you're not saved, that you need a Savior, quickly call upon Jesus to save you. Don't wait. Don't wait. Do not linger. Put your faith in Him now. So I don't know if I understand who Jesus is altogether. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Him. Look to Him. Call upon Him. Remember the thief on the cross. He had no knowledge. (laughs) He had no deep theological knowledge. But he looked at Jesus and said, remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus is the Savior. He's the only Savior. Put your faith in him. Put your faith in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the the words of truth. Help us understand them more fully, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.